0: Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt inside the Beltway live this morning, joined by Fox News host of Fox News Sunday, Chris Wallace. Good morning, Chris. How are you? I'm great.
1: Thank you so much for having me on Hugh.
0: Uh Well, congratulations on publication day for Countdown Bin Laden. I'm holding it up for my YouTube audience. I have got Countdown Bin Laden in my hand. It's the Advanced Readers Edition. Which means it doesn't have an index, so I couldn't do the Washington read. I actually had to read it, Chris, so this will be an unusual uh, interview for you. I know often on a book tour you'll run into hosts who haven't read it, but I've read it, so I, I wanted you to know that at the beginning. Um, you timed this, obviously, for the 20th anniversary of nine eleven, not knowing that it would also be the ongoing defeat and rolling evacuation from Afghanistan of America— what has that done to your plans to talk about the book and your book
1: tour? Well, not, not, nothing really. Uh, and in fact, I think it's probably made it more topical. I, I mean, I always knew that the 20th anniversary of 9-11 was a good hook, if you will, for, for publishing a book. Uh, but I think that there's obviously a lot more focus on Afghanistan now than there would have been. And, and you know, quite frankly, the idea that the people who were in charge of Afghanistan on 9-11 when almost 3,000 of our fellow Americans were killed are back in charge of it today. And, and the way we got out, I mean, that, that, that is a, a very raw subject with a lot of people. But what I get, you know, there obviously I have different thoughts because of that. And one of them is as badly as it ended and as badly as I think most Americans feel about the execution of the way we got out, I think this, point, this book points out two things, Hugh, and one is we accomplished a lot. We did a lot in those 20 years, and, and the most important thing is what we set out to do in the first place, which was to, to kill bin Laden, to avenge 9-11, to degrade Afghanistan, uh, the, the al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, and you know to protect the homeland, and the fact is there was not another major attack coming from Afghanistan in these 20 years. So that's, that's a lot. And the second thing, I just think it's a case study because it's badly handled as the evacuation and the, and the withdrawal was in these last few weeks. The, the bin Laden, the CIA find, finding the compound, the, the deliberations going on inside the White House, the meticulous planning by the, the SEALs and the special forces. You know, is a case study of how well this country can do when all of the, milit- all of the communities and the government – Work together, So, you know, in a a story that ends badly, this is a highlight. I've
0: interviewed a lot of the people that you did, obviously. I've not talked to Secretary of Defense Panetta, who was CIA director at the time. But Admiral McRaven has been a guest. Mike Morrell has been a guest when his wonderful book came out. Uh, I've been uh, just a lot of people that I cross paths with. But the most interesting thing to me about Countdown Bin Laden, Chris Wallace, is the dog that doesn't bark. And I want to go to page 192. The stress of not knowing was getting to McRaven. Maybe by the end of today's meeting, and this is on April 19th of 2011, 12 days to go before the mission, uh, he'd have an answer. In any case, he had to be perfectly prepared, able to answer every question, not only from President Obama, but from anyone else in the situation room. Every heavyweight in the administration, Panetta, Gates, Clinton, Biden, Mullen would be there, too, and all the top military brass. There were some great minds among them, and McRaven didn't want to be blindsided. Again, I don't have the final book. I've got the reader's copy, so there's no index. I believe that's the first time that Joe Biden is mentioned, and I believe the only other time he has a substantive comment in here is on page 211 where he says he doesn't really want to go ahead because he'd be more comfortable with more information information. He's generally the dog that doesn't bark. The president of the United States. I mean, everybody else is in here again and again. I mean, Gates doesn't want to do the mission. He changes his mind. Panetta always in favor of the mission. Mullen's in favor of the mission. Did you find it impossible to pin down the Joe Biden story? Tony Blinken's in there on page uh, 23 opposed to the mission early on. But generally, they're not there.
1: No, and I got to tell you, I mean, you're there's a reason you're Hugh Hewitt. You're a very perceptive reader, and the the fact is, as I went through this this story, and I interviewed, as you say, Gates and Panetta and McRaven and the Seals and uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, Joe Biden's name barely came up. He wasn't a player in this whole thing, and and you know, the one time that, as you say, he he kind of Ways in is, you know, April 28th, the president is going around the table in the, uh, in the situation room. All right, what's your final recommendation? He goes first because he's to his right and he's the vice president to Biden. And Biden says, I don't think we have enough information, and I think there's too much of a danger that we're going to ruin our relations with Pakistan, and we rely on them to get supplies into our forces in Afghanistan. And then they move on, and Gates, as you say, is against it, and everybody else is for it. And that's it. And there's another story which has never been told before, which is that uh, on the way back to the Pentagon, uh, Robert Gates, the secretary of defense, and Mike Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, are in, in a car together being driven back. And Gates, as he did in his memoir, had apparently said a lot of times to people, Joe Biden has been wrong about every major foreign policy decision in the last 40 years. And Mullen had heard that, and he tweaks Gates and says, hey, you know, you say that he's wrong about every foreign policy decision, and yet you're with him on this one. Uh, so it, there wasn't a lot of respect for Joe Biden inside the inner councils of the, uh, uh, of the Obama White House during all of this. And, and one of the other things I'd say, and, and it, frankly, it's what excites me most about the book, I hope you felt this, is it's a thriller that, you know, yes, we all know how it ends, but we take you inside the room when Panetta first learns about the compound and when they're debating what to do in the situation room and on the helicopter on the way to Abbottabad. So I promise you the last hundred pages, you're on the edge of your seat thinking what happens next.
0: Oh, it is. And even for someone like me, and I've read and know Rob O'Neill, I've had dinner with Rob O'Neill. I, I, I've spent three hours in studio with Mike Morell. I interviewed Mike Morell at the Reagan Library. I know a lot of these people pretty well. But I learned stuff, and that's very hard for me to do after. I've read almost every book that's come out. I did not read Leon Panetta's. This is Panetta's POV, and I think Leon must have spent a lot of time with you. I should call him Secretary Panetta because he's not a friend, but I feel like I know him. I love the story of Mrs. Panetta saying, you go back, you run the CIA, dear. I'm staying in Monterey because that's what my wife would say, too. And he's getting a little <laughs> attic apartment with a dog. I just find that. That kind of stuff is fascinating details. But let me ask you about the two controversial stories that are buried in here. First of all, it takes 14 days from the first time that Leon Panetta learns about the walking man, the pacer, to brief the president. Didn't that strike you as a long time, Chris Wallace, to go and tell the president that we may have Osama bin
1: Laden? No, because they were doing everything they could to try to figure out. Who is this guy? They've got you know drone and satellite uh, images that show this figure that's walking around a garden just outside the main villa of the compound in Abbottabad. So, but they're trying desperately. They don't you know they know who Obama is, and Obama is going to say, "Well, is it Bin Laden?" And they're doing everything they can to try to find out whether or not it's Bin Laden. So. Panetta is looking at this, and he says, gee, he looks tall to me. And so he goes to the National Geospatial Agency, and he says, can you analyze how tall this guy is? And they say, yeah, uh, we've come up with a conclusion. He's somewhere between 5'8 and 6'8. So (laughs) for a guy who's 6'4, that doesn't tell you a lot. He could be 5'8 or he could be 6'8. And and that's, that's the amazing thing about this story. When Obama makes the decision to launch the raid, on April 29th, Friday, April 29th of 2011, they have a meeting the day before the one where Biden says don't do it. And uh, and, and there, people are ascribing all kinds of certainty. Well, I think it's a, a 5% chance. I think it's a 90% chance. And he said, look, guys, it's a 50-50 chance. He's either there or he's not there. And they go off to do the mission on what is a 50-50 proposition.
0: Uh, that is that, it's also fascinating to me that as late as uh – uh, page two hundred seven. President Obama is still considering a drone strike, which seems to me to be intuitively a terrible idea. But let me go to my exclamation points. I'm holding up, Chris. You can't see it, but my YouTube watchers can see. I always take notes in the back of a book on when I have I'm gonna questions. I'm
1: going to say, incidentally, I'm very impressed. At, I mean, when you're citing pages. I've got the book next to me. And I'm looking to see. What, what's he talking about on 207? Well,
0: well, run over to page 93, because this, this I have written down. He did what? Uh, what do you think I'm referring to when I wrote down he did what? I'm talking about Please. Leon Panetta over the president's explicit oh, instructions. Yes. Brief yeah. members of Congress. That's a – I can't say it on the radio. The FCC will find me. That's a blank moment.
2: He did yeah. what?
1: No, he – well, he did two things. You have to understand, this was so closely held. Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, as I we begin this story in August of 2010, Hillary Clinton isn't read into the story until March of 2011. Yes. That's how closely held this was. But he felt – and he said he had promised Congress, and so he started briefing the top members of the intel committees. And remember, this is a Democratic administration – after the 2010 election, which was a great election for Republicans, now suddenly Republicans, not Democrats, are taking over the, the House Intel Committee. And he briefs them because he says, we need to get by an end when on March 4th, he lets Tom Donnell the National Security Oh, Advisor that was something. Know. Oh, was Donnellan he hot? Was nuts. Was oh, nuts. he was hot. Yeah. Did you interview Donnellan? I did. What, did he remember I, the I meeting actually, the same way Leon up. did? Oh, uh, uh, you know, absolutely. No, no, they both, they both uh, owned up to it. it. You know, I gotta say, this is the one advantage: doing it this many years later, people were willing to say more than they said in the year or two after. And you know, when I spoke to these folks, all of them for hours and hours and hours. And you know, like like anything else, it, you like uh, the organized crime thing. You get a tidbit from one guy, and then you tr- trade it to the next guy, and you get a little bit more. So, by the time you 're talking to Tom Donald, you know a lot from about three or four people about what went on in the room
0: now now, Chris Wallace, if you ever ask President Obama, you have to ask him because he won't come on the show he's the one guy who will you know hillary 's been here, John Kerry, they all come on, but President Obama won 't come on my show, and I 'll read his book closely when he does, but now I will ask him if I ever have the chance. Do you trust everybody less when your CIA director countermands your explicit order and briefs members of Congress? Because if you're a future president, you're going to say Obama couldn't trust Panetta to keep a secret. How the hell do I get anyone to keep a secret?
1: Well, you know, it's a it's a legitimate question. It, it, you know, it's a fair it's a fair question. I guess on the one hand, it all worked out, uh, but I can tell you, uh, Obama was not when Trump Goes back after the March fourth meeting and tells President Obama he's tick two, and he has Donlin call Vanetta's chief of staff Jeremy Batch and say, "You tell me everybody who Vanetta yes. has talked to in this story." It, it, it's it's you know as I say it's a it's a history thriller. You think you know the story, and there are new nuggets. Also, one quick thing: the guy who was the operational head of the hunt, a fellow we call Gary not his real name, who was the not head of the Pakistan name. Afghan Department, had never talked to anybody, and he talks to us for the first time and gives a lot of insight into uh, what went on behind the scenes.
0: There's, I have two more questions. I'm taking you along, That's Chris. It. I'm sorry. Tony Blinken on page 23. Tony Blinken, President Joe Biden, National Security Advisor, was skeptical. Yes, it wouldn't have been brought to the president's attention if there wasn't something there, but they'd seen so many false leads over the years. That's the last time we see Blinken in Countdown Bin Laden. Did he ever change his mind like Bob Gates changed his mind and endorsed the mission? Joe Biden didn't change his mind. Didn't Blinken ever change his mind?
1: No, I don't think so. And remember, Blinken was the national security advisor to the vice president. And, uh, you know, I I didn't specifically ask that question. Frankly, I didn't care that much what Tony Blinken thought. But, uh, you know, the fact is that Biden, his boss, goes into that meeting on April 28th and says, no, we shouldn't do it.
0: Uh, last question, Chris. I know you're on a hard out. Uh, no, President I'm Trump fine. was my I take your time. Oh, okay. President Trump was my guest last week. Um, your name came up. He's not a fan. Oh. Now I've got my set of tough tattoos. I was wondering, did you hear him talking about you behind your back and me talking about you behind your back? No. All right, you, I'm gonna play I, it what for the fuck you, Chris. Was I'm going to play it for you. Here it is. Donald no, Trump you'd
2: l- be great. And, and play would be great. Portnoy would be great. You, you shouldn't use a Chris Wallace. He's terrible. He was terrible. He had no control of the. Well, debate. Shouldn't we get rid of the presidential debate commission? It's a terrible I, thing. I would say yes. I would say yes. They do they're, they're totally biased. When I, you know, four years ago, I complained. I said, you put all Clinton people up here. And, you know, obviously it worked out very well for me. I think these debates were very good. But I will tell you this, uh, Chris Wallace was so biased, it was disgraceful. And all he would do is complain that that Biden wouldn't go on a show. So I figured, hey, he can't stand Biden because Biden wouldn't do a show. Biden was afraid to do a show. So Biden wouldn't do a show. So why would they pick, you know, why would they allow Chris Wallace to do it? And yet. His true colors came out. Look, Chris Wallace, his father was a good friend of mine. His father did me on 60 Minutes. It was actually a very good job. I was very happy with it. But Mike Wallace was a legend. Chris Wallace wants to try and be like his father, but he doesn't have the talent. Chris Wallace should not be doing debates. He was horrible. He wouldn't let, let me ask the question is, why did the mayor of Russia's wife, the mayor of Moscow, why did the mayor of Moscow's wife give him to Hunter three and a half million dollars? Why didn't China, how come China was able to give him a billion and a half? How come Ukraine gave him all that money? Chris Wallace said, that's not pertinent to this debate. No, let me just tell you, Chris Wallace did a terrible job. And he shouldn't be doing any more debate. Now, Chris, <laughs> Wallace, I cut
0: him off then because I, I don't debate people. I interview people. I let them get their piece in. I did not prompt that. I do hate the Presidential Debate Commission. I think it ought to be over. But I want to give you a chance to respond to what the president said.
1: Well, you know, I, I, a couple of points, I guess I'd make. First of all, I'm a little, you know, I, I feel like. Uh, for a landlord, as, as uh, Donald Trump is, I'm, I'm really doing well living rent-free in his brain to that extent, where we're, you know, what it was, that was in September, and we're now uh, almost a year later, and he's still that obsessed with what happened. Uh, secondly, you know, uh, he talk about rewriting history. Do you know how many times he interrupted, forget me, but interrupted me, but more importantly, Joe Biden in that debate, we some poor Fox staffer had to look it up. A hundred and forty five times. I all I wanted was a good, even handed debate, as I did in 2016, which he loved between him and Hillary Clinton. You know, I think, frankly, he made a terrible mistake in that debate, strategic debate, because I if I were he, you know, and we're all kind of frustrated politicians or political advisors. I think most people who are political junkies, I would have let Biden talk because the more Biden talks, the more Biden gets in trouble. So if I'm Trump, I let Biden talk, get in trouble, and then counterpunch and say, did you hear what he just said? But instead, he kept interrupting Biden so much that he kind of propped up Biden, which I think was exactly the wrong thing to do.
0: Now, Chris Wallace, I organized and produced and laid down the rules for a governor recall debate at the Nixon Library three weeks ago. And Hugh's rules are everybody gets... Uh, questions cannot be longer than 30 seconds. We had four people asking questions, myself, Ambassador O'Brien, Alex Michelson and Christina, uh, who is his co-anchor on Fox L.A. Uh, there are four of us. You get 30 second questions, response, 75 seconds, no right of reply, because I did not want a replay. Everyone kept to those rules. The right of reply is what screws things up. But did it not occur to you just let them go at it uh, when they were going at it?
1: Well, look, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Actually, I if if, there, if I have a regret, it's that I didn't, and I did do it about forty minutes in. I mean, let me just say, you know, when you do, and you've done primary debates, and I've done primary debates, when you're doing a, a general election debate, the pressure and the, the 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 care that you give to it is so enormous. You know, in my case, I think eighty million people watch this debate, right? And you know, when it's a month before the election, or I guess this case was so a little over a month. And, you know, you just want it to be great. And, and it's not about the moderator. My view is it's like a prize fight. I'm a fight fan. I, what, my idea of a perfect moderator for a debate is when it's over, people say, that was a great debate. Who was the moderator? 100% agree. 100% and, and, agree. And, 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 you know, and, and actually Jim Lehrer who used to do him for, uh, you know, for PBS. Uh, he kind of taught me that. He said, it's not about you, and you want to be as invisible as possible. And and you know I kind of wh- I mean the problem was if it, well it, it, quickly so what often happens in these in these debates Hugh, as you well know is they become kind of side by side news conferences you ask Trump a question you ask Clinton a question and they don't really engage with each other so when Trump started interrupting Biden and uh, and engaging my initial reaction is this is great this is this is going to be a debate I can sit back and take the ninety minutes off but it it. You know, and look, it's a judgment call you're making at that moment. I didn't think it was a constructive thing because they were, like, talking over each other. They weren't engaging and having a good back and forth. So I was trying to restore some order and let them go by the rules that they had agreed to. Um, It was a mess. There's no question about it. And, you know, occasionally I wake up in the middle of the night and think, what could I have done better on September 29th, 2020?
0: Well, Candy Crowley was my guest after that debate, and that 's the only one I really was upset about because she interrupted mitt romney 's response that I think might have turned the election around i think if, if I, I
1: completely agree with you i' think uh, that and was so, the one and, and I will tell you you know i 've done two debates now, so i 've won the debate commission. That is what they consider the low moment in the debate and, in in their whole history since one thousand nine hundred and eighty eight and and specifically, there was a question about something that uh, that Obama had said and whether or not, you know, there was two interpretations. I I, I forget the exact thing, but it was whether or not he had basically whether or not he had called the attack on Benghazi terror or not. Yes. And she ends up interrupting Romney and siding with Obama, you know, and and that's the, the, the ultimate sin. If you side with one side over the other, you never do that. And she did that. And I agree. I think it was very damaging to Romney and, uh, you know, I, I-
0: and I'm not surprised that the debate commission understands that that is the original sin on which all of us are now poised to jump when we see it. The president, th- President Trump, former President Trump, thinks he saw it with you. Uh, and I'll leave it to everyone to judge that you don't think that happened. Here's my real question. I think the presidential debate commission has got to go away and that they've got to let the candidates negotiate anchors. I believe uh, uh, Rachel Maddow, Hugh Hewitt debate would be the best debate in America because everyone would know I'm a Republican and she's a Democrat, I'm a conservative, she's a leftist. Everyone would know. What do you think about that, Chris? While getting rid of the quote, nonpartisan, objective journalist, close quote, people like you and Chuck Todd and people like uh, Jake Tapper and Dana Bash, and I have enormous respect for the professional credentials of all of you, but let people into the arena about whom there is no question where their partisan beliefs lie, but even up the table
1: i i don't disagree with that idea although i would rather have me than rachel Maddow. But, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well i'd rather know, have make me make than it, you but it's okay it that's a given yeah but 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 here's here's the only problem they've done that and that's the way it used to be until 1988 and you know you'd get the you would get the uh jim baker who was the campaign manager for George H.W. Bush, and Jim Johnson, who was the camp? Well, no, I guess it would have been, I don't know who it would have been for Dukakis in 88. And they couldn't agree. They couldn't agree on a moderator or a bunch of moderators. And there was one year, I don't know whether it was uh, 88 or 92, where the only person they could agree on was Jim Lehrer of PBS, and he ended up moderating all the debates. So, you know, it's a good idea, and I'm, I'm open to anything. Uh, You know, I'm open to anything, but I do think the only problem is that you end up sometimes with uh, the the two sides just unable. In particular, and whatever, however polarized the parties were in 1988 or '92, I mean that's that's uh, uh, you know a musical comedy compared to how they are today.
0: Yeah, I just think the Presidential Day Commission is now run by people who are completely beltway, and they're nice people. They are just run their time. Let me finish on Countdown Bin Laden, Chris. Um, the 9-11 celebration commemoration uh, memorials are coming up. I believe that the administration is trying to turn the page on the thousands of Americans left. I'm am told I did not see it on Sunday. I was uh, picking up people at the airport that you interviewed uh, Chairman McCall. I'm told you did a good job. I believe that the administration is absolutely shamelessly obfuscating. They will not give us exact numbers of the minimum they know. They won't give us names of Americans. They're confusing LPRs with citizens when they're all Americans. They're confusing SIVs with LPRs. Green card holders ought to be here. Do you believe there is a cover-up underway of the extent of Americans, both citizens and LPRs, who are hidden, who are left and abandoned in Afghanistan? And if so, what will you do about it?
1: I, well, it was the first question I asked McCall on Sunday, the top Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, as I said, you know, they're not, and I specifically said Secretary of State Blinken on Friday refused to say how many Americans and Afghan allies have left since, since uh, we pulled out last Monday, and do you know, as, as this top official, and he said, I have absolutely no idea, and I've asked the State Department, and I don't know. And then he broke news, which was the fact that there were some Americans and Afghans who, as he said, were being held hostage at an airport in northern Afghanistan, Mazar-e-Sharif. And I, you know, absolutely am going to do everything I can to find out. You know, look, cover-up, that's a little strong for me, but they certainly are not coming clean about it. And, you know, I suppose one of the arguments would be well to the degree – we let people know who's gotten out and how they've gotten out. Like apparently, four Americans got out overland. It may, you know, it may alert the Taliban. But no, the country, the, the the pullout and the evacuation was totally screwed up. And you know, they we we need to have more transparency. Obviously, nothing about operational security. About are we able to get them out? And and if not, let's be clean and clear about it. If the Taliban is demanding stuff unfreeze the billions of dollars in assets, recognize us diplomatically, do other things. We ought to let, you know, the American people ought to know. The the U.S. government knows. The Taliban knows. The only people who don't know are us.
0: You see, I would accept that. If if Ron Klain came out and said, I have a great deal of respect for Ron Klain, I'm not going to give you any details because it will endanger our negotiations with the Taliban and the people involved. I would respect that, and I would back off. They're not doing that, according to the Wall Street Journal this morning. They're trying to turn the page, and that's a completely different thing. And I'm afraid that the Taliban are going to be forced into a Danny Pearl situation to get the attention of the American people back. So I think their obfuscation is endangering Americans. Is that a legitimate point of view?
1: I, I, at this point, honestly, everything's a legitimate point of view. Uh, You know, we're talking about some of the most bloodthirsty. Savage people on Earth, you know, when they say the kinder, gentler Taliban, uh, Khalil Haqani, who is the self-appointed head of security in Kabul, organized uh, IED explosives that took out our fellow American soldiers. He's got a $5 million bounty on his head. So, you know, are, th- are these guys capable of anything? Yes. And, and you know, could they, to, if they think it's a, to their advantage to turn this into a, just an a Iran-style hostage situation. I don't see that yet, but it, is it is it off the table? No, of course not. Nothing with these people. Nothing's off the table. Nothing. Last, qu- very last question. There again, can, I it, only it, have look. I am on the Hugh Hewitt show. You can uh, keep talking to me as long as you want. Uh, okay. Okay.
0: Uh, Zawahiri. The, he's not. I didn't see his name again. I don't have the. I don't have the index book, so I couldn't see if I missed him. I don't see Zawahiri's name. I expect him to show up in cobble. I really do. I think the son of a. I can't say that because of the FCC again. We'll play the rest of this tomorrow. Do you think Zawahiri is going to show up? And did he not? Did you not ask about him or did people not want to talk about him because he's still at no, large? No, uh,
1: no. He is in the book. He's uh, late in the book. Uh, we, we talk about. I asked uh, what were the impact of taking bin Laden out as and this Gary, who, who. Oh, Gary. Okay. Yeah, and, and Gary talks about him, and, and there's an analysis, and basically, you know. <laughs> The fact of the matter is, like anything else, like good, great broadcasters, like yourself, versus medium broadcasters and baseball players and politicians, there are more effective and inspirational terrorists and less effective. Zawahiri is, I guess, a good backup guy, a staff guy, but he's not. He's not a leader. And and one of the things that the people said was that since he took over after 2011, you know, there, there just hasn't been nearly as much. Uh, impetus behind uh, al-Qaeda, al- al- and one of the guys, uh, uh, at Gary, who was the head of the Pakistan Afghan Department, says, you know, one of the things we did is we took out, the- we decapitated the head of al-Qaeda, and, you know, there's- somebody's going to replace him, but he's not as good. And he-, and he specifically says, I've read Zawahiri's job evaluation. It's not good. Uh, yeah, That, that comes through in The, the Looming
0: Tower. Uh, you, you cite The Looming Tower. In fact, I went through your bibliography, and I've read Cheney and Cole and Clinton and Doug Feith. I've read Robert Gates, McRaven, Morell, O'Neill, Tennant, Woodward, and Wright. I think the best book of them all is Lawrence Wright's, followed up closely by Mike Morell's. When you're done and you've written your own book, who do you think should be in this administration, given the, that— they got to be Democrats, and given their experience that you talked to, should Panetta be back? Should Morell be back? Who would you put in if you could, based on your research into bin Laden and countdown bin Laden?
1: Uh, to me, the greatest weakness, I, I, it, it, I don't think it's in the intel community, uh, maybe in the military community, and definitely at state. I'm very impressed, uh, unimpressed by the state operation. I'm very un, unimpressed By Anthony Blinken you know Blinken had a news conference I guess it was well it was last Friday it was when he refused to say how many people uh, Americans and Afghans had gotten out and you know he was speaking with all the uh, passion of somebody reading the telephone book and you know it's not a matter of politics it's a matter of presence and gravitas when Mike Pompeo or Hillary Clinton or you know you can go on and on Colin Powell spoke for the United States of America they was, you know, there was a don't mess with us, guys. We're the United States of America. Blinken, I think, is a great staff man. But he, I'm not I'm very doubtful as to whether he should be the voice other than the president. And Lord knows Kamala Harris isn't around the, the voice of America's uh, presence in the world.
0: Uh, let's let's follow up on that, Chris Wallace. Staff people and principles. there's a big difference. You understand it. I understand it. I understand when you say that Tony Blinken is a staffer. I've done panels with Tony Blinken, uh, watched him in the Aspen Security Institute, talked to him. Uh, Wendy Sherman is more of a principal than Tony Blinken is. I would like to see Admiral Stavridis at state. But would you explain for our audience the difference between a staffer and a principal, what it really comes down to? Sure.
1: Uh, I mean, and, and I'm sure people in their own businesses see it. You know, there's somebody who's the the assistant manager or the IHR the person, you know, who are, are very good and very competent and they do their job, but they're not going to lead people and they're not going to impress people. And, you know, you need somebody as a principal in any organization, but especially in a position like Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense, who impresses our allies and gives them comfort that, you know, the United States is on your side. And frankly, scares the hell out of our enemies. Like, I don't want to mess with this guy. And, and uh, you know, it's more than just knowledge. It's more than just competence. It's force of, of personality, will. Uh, and, 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 you know, some people have it and some people don't.
0: The ability to project fear into your enemies is what I think you were alluding to. And I agree with you. Pompeo and Clinton both had that. I'm not sure Secretary Blinken. I want to end on a happy note. Uh, Mrs. Panetta is now the fetching Mrs. Hewitt's new hero because she said to Leon, "Okay, you go do the CIA. I ain't leaving
1: Monterey. Uh, I'll come visit.
0: Uh, Did you interview her?
1: I did not. I interviewed. I spent a lot of time with Panetta. Can I just tell one quick story? Please. I love
0: Panetta stories.
1: New Year's Eve 2010. So you know, this is right in the middle of the hunt. They they haven't figured out whether or not it's been laden. They haven't even begun to en- enlist uh, McRaven in the military in this. And the Panettas go as they went every year to a New Year's Eve celebration with all of their friends at a very good. I've never been to it, but a very good restaurant supposedly in Monterey, California, called the Sardine Factory. And the owner of the of the place, a guy named Ted Ballastre, is there. And he starts bragging that he's got a bottle of 1870 Lafitte Rothschild, which is, I don't know if it's good because it's pretty old, but it's a very expensive and desired bottle of wine. And at one point somebody says, when when are you going to open that up, Ted, and serve it? And he goes, you know what, I'll serve it when when, uh, Leon Panetta finds Osama bin Laden. So the day of the raid, you know, uh, May 1st, the president is about to announce it to the country. Uh Panetta calls his wife, Sylvia, and he says, call Balistrier and tell him to watch TV, to watch cable, uh, in about 20 minutes. And, of course, he sees it and he finds out that uh, that they've caught bin Laden and he's going to have to open the bottle of 1870 Lafitte. And Balustrarian says, the bastard set me up. <laughs>
0: he knew. Well, look, there's a lot of those moments, including a lot of recollection that people forget the celebration that happened in America when we got bin Laden it was it's underscoring the great unease and disgust with the Afghan exit right now. It's the same emotion, it's the same people, it's not red or blue, Chris Wallace, it's American. And I think the administration is deeply underestimating the damage done as a result of their withdrawal. I hope you keep pressing them for for facts and figures and congratulations on Countdown Bin Laden. Great read, fascinating read. I enjoyed it a lot.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. This is really a pleasure. And frankly, I'm, I'm honored that not only did you read the book, you know what's on every page. So Well, I try
0: and do Thank these well. I told someone last night, authors are always surprised. I like them early in the book, because now everything is downhill for you, Chris. You know that. No one else will have read it. But uh, the news cycle has been so bad. But good luck. I think it's going to sell. Thank you again. Thank you, Hugh. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did, and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.